There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So this is part two of Do We Have a Fear of Experts? What do you think? Let's get into it. This is Stop and Search on the Distraction Pieces Network. Brought to you by ACAST. Let's get this all out of the way quick and get on with the episode. Let's go. So left on part one, go listen to that if you're not already. This part two is predominantly focused around audience questions. We had a lot of good interaction. So as you remember, we've got Professor Nutt, who pretty much needs no introduction, does he? And we've got Elle Wadsworth from What's the Crap podcast, and we've got Chris Coltrane from Lodotics. This is, again, a fascinating conversation. Just gets said every time, doesn't it? But it genuinely is. I'm not just saying that. As ever, follow us on Twitter at UKLeap. Follow us on Facebook at UKLeap.org. Find us on the internet at UKLeap.org. Instagram at UKLeap. And I think that's it. And please do share this podcast about if you can. It really does help. Uh, And also suggest this guest as well, because it's quite useful if we've got some scouts out there in our audience making sure that we're tapped into what people are saying. We've got some great guests coming up, but let's get straight on part two. So this is Do We Have a Fear of Experts? If I may come to a previous podcast guest who's having a bit of a relaxing night after six hours in the House of Commons yesterday debating this issue. Yeah, a round of applause, I think. There was a collection of online transform release ourselves. We was all live tweeting the debate, and we was knackered just from doing that, let alone actually being there having to sit through it. So how do you think it went? Do you think we're, from the 2009-10 days of Professor Knight, do you think we progressed at all? I'm I'm tempted to immediately uh, support the all-party parliamentary group on beer. It's, it's It's not all bad. And we certainly don't get given cases of beer. Uh... Uh, it does not beat every two weeks either. Um, is it progressing? Yeah, of course it's progressing. It's a discussion we're having and we're openly, we're honestly. Uh, one of the things we looked at yesterday is we knew uh, Norman Lamb, Lib Dem was on board, we knew I was on board, we knew Crispin Blunt, Conservative, was on board, but we weren't very sure really what the Labour Party were doing about this. And it was hard to grip it, and out of yesterday's debate, two, three, maybe four stepped up and said, yeah, this is okay. So I was like, tick, 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 tick. We thought, great. So now what we do is we outreach to those people and say, let's do something else in Parliament. Let, let's do the next step. Because the strange thing uh, was uh, Norman Lamb and I tried to get uh, what's called a backbench business debate in, in Parliament uh, prior to the last, the last election. And we're basically told it's not, it's not going to happen. There's no appetite for this. And then there's an election. And then suddenly, on the back of the policy announcement last Friday, the government on their own time said, we're going to have a six-hour debate actually in the chamber. So that was a real bonus to us. Uh, so if they're open to that discussion, maybe it's a case of next time they do a, a policy reform. Is it, is it going to take two years? Hopefully not. But on the basis of the evidence we drew on yesterday's debate, we now believe there is a stronger cross-party support to discuss this openly and honestly. And uh, this microphone's kicking it out. And one of the things I've said, and I, 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 I've... I did a podcast months ago in here, and one of the things I said on that podcast, and you can check back on this, was when it comes to issues like this, I always go to experts. And I 
pursuing universal basic income, I talk to experts, and pursuing the Nordic model in prostitution, I talk to experts. There's a lot more MPs like me who do that, whether they've got PhDs or not. We listen to experts and we take on board what they've got to say. I think a round of applause for Ronnie. And, and during the debate, there was one bit of it that made the news, which was uh, Paul Flynn MP. He uh, he was going for direct action on this. I don't know if you if you followed it at all. Um, he he was mentioning a case that was close to him, a medicinal cannabis user that w went in to the Houses of Parliament. He helped to ingest cannabis tea in Parliament. And then he pretty much broke parliamentary rules by saying, let's break the law and let's actually get more medicinal cannabis users in and break the law in Parliament whilst using it. And if he's all right, Alex, and come over to you. And I think this might actually kind of happen now. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that. Um, today on Facebook, I started up an event uh, for a little group I organised called the United Patients Alliance. We're one of the UK's medical cannabis organisations. Um, and yeah, we're hoping to go to Parliament um, in September when, they, uh, when the recess is over. And um, we're going to invite as many medical cannabis patients as we can to come along, and cannabis consumers, non-medical, whatever you want to do. Um, come along and support us. And yeah, we're, we're answering Paul Flynn's call, basically, and that event has gone a bit mad on, on Facebook since. So um, we're expecting it to be quite a good turnout already, and it was uh, posted online about a few hours ago. So very excited about that one. Yeah. No. So just give a bit of background, because we actually, actually haven't had anybody from the UPA on yet. So what do the UPA do? Well, well happy to, next time the invitation comes, I'll... Uh, <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, we started off as a very small group of uh, patients, MS, uh, myself with Crohn's disease, uh, a number of others with uh, arthritis, cancer, and all sorts of other illnesses, and got together and decided enough is enough. We need to sort of unify, um, get the message out there about how uh, cannabis is helping us live our lives day to day, how we're criminalised for using it, um, risking... Uh, yeah, criminal sentences, prosecution. Um, we founded in about 2014. Um, David Nutt actually spoke at our launch night along with Caroline Lucas and yourself, actually. Um, <laughs> and uh, since then, just it's been going from strength to strength. We're, we're um, uh, doing some incredible things. We've got some really big announcements coming up that I'm not sure I'm allowed to talk about on the podcast, but uh, it's getting to be very exciting. And uh, yeah, just stay tuned, really. Check us out on, on all social media and what have you. And um, yeah, United Patients Alliance. Uh, I'd like to think we're, we're getting up to being sort of the main medical cannabis organisation in the UK. We felt there needed to be an organisation that focused on that. There's many, many cannabis activist organisations, and lots of them do great work, um, but we felt there was a need to focus on the medical issue and to really raise that and to get patient stories into the media wherever possible. Um, so that's what we do. We host events, we get patients to talk, we, we uh, put them into the media, and we do everything we can to support them. I think a round of applause for Alex can. And if you did want to watch what uh, the UPA uh, specifically have done, uh, there's a film on Amazon Prime which you can watch called Grassroots, The Cannabis Revolution, and it gives quite a good overview of what's gone on in the last, what, two, three years, isn't it? With Clark French, Alex, uh, Jonathan Liebling. Um, there's just so much that the UPA have done in that time. Uh, do you think, Chris, I'm going to come to you on this, do you think direct action can play a part in protest and I know that's probably a contradiction in terms but do you think that we can actually do think more with direct action uh, well uh, as happens I can tell you a story about that um, I don't know whether you uh, I don't I, I genuinely don't know whether you knew this or not already to set me up for that because this happened a few years ago but I was part of a protest group called UK Uncut which you may have heard of we're a tax justice direct action group and what we would do is we would go into the shops of tax dodgers uh, Vodafone Boots, Barclays, uh, Topshop, BHS. Uh, we, we get anything between, you know, four and a hundred people to sit in the doorway, block the entrance, refuse to leave and shut the store down like a big society revenue and customs. And um, because the government wasn't doing anything about um, tax dodging. I mean, possibly you saw the story years ago in Private Eye about Vodafone uh, allegedly dodging six billion pounds in tax that same year it was the beginning of austerity schools but uh, sorry i beg your pardon the, the entire welfare cuts that year were seven billion pounds so that one tax dodge could have paid for almost every single cut to welfare and i i i, I saw that and it's the sort of the, the, the sort of numbers that are so big these things well, I, I can't do anything about that that's preposterous um but luckily some amazing people 
had the idea to go into the store and shut them down. And that one protest was extraordinary because it was covered in all of the, the press. Um, I was protesting and doing an interview with Sky News on my phone at the same time. It was very strange. Um, but that one protest on, I think it was Wednesday, spread to three Vodafone stores being shut down on the Saturday. I think I'm right in saying that the next week it was then 50 Vodafone stores all around the country being shut down in one day. I've got copies of uh, the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail that ran stories about tax dodging that you can cut, that hunt thousands of people all around the country just taking action, managed to get into mainstream newspapers in a way that people didn't care about tax avoidance before. It's so boring, right? It's so uh, uh, you know, tedious talking about economics. But when you can link it to uh, austerity and direct cuts that those... Uh, taxes could have paid for, people understand that, that, that this is a problem. And also, we, we have friends in the Treasury who said that companies went to the Treasury saying, well, we don't want to be the victims of a UK cut protest. We need to get our tax fares in line. And apparently, that brought in millions of pounds back into the country that would have otherwise been overseas. And that was because thousands of people all around the country took direct action. So, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, how good's that? Um, I think, Professor Nutt, you might have a a bit more of a, an insight than the rest of us of what goes in behind closed doors at Parliament. Do you think they are... Is there a, a scaredness of publicity and negative publicity? Is that a route towards reform? Is the more you can whip up, the more you start uh, charge you stand? Well, I, th I, think, I certainly think with the, um, with, with the medical cannabis uh, argument, the only way to win it is... Well, well, the most powerful argument we have are, are the patient narratives. And... Uh, and because it's it's kind of it's 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 perverse and and cruel and and completely pointless not to take notice of them, uh, particularly when it is it's very likely that not only by making cannabis medical cannabis available you'll not only reduce suffering you'll also reduce the cost to the NHS because you'll save on other drugs that they're using you'll save the number of people getting um, addicted or dependent on opiate painkillers. As, has been shown in the states. Medical medical marijuana states have fewer deaths from opiates because medical marijuana is a better treatment for chronic pain syndromes than opiates, and it doesn't kill you. So you know, so, so there would be a, a significant benefit to the NHS. There'd be a very significant benefit to uh, to patients. It would be a humane thing to do, and. What you have to do with the Patients' Alliance is you've got to do what you did, which is you've got to get the male wanting it. Because if the male and the son come out in favour, then no government's going to stand up to them. Is it difficult from your position, El, of sitting there watching the TV and what goes on in the news realms, in the political realms, is it like me, where if, I don't know, what am I interested in? I, I, I used to do karate, so when I watched Karate Kid, I shouted at it a lot. Is it the same with you in, in the... I know it's a terrible example, isn't it? I'm sorry about that. I apologise profusely. But the point is, do you shout at the telly when it's from someone that's a very informed position like you that the, the mistreatment that goes on in this specific subject matter of, of drugs, is it difficult to watch that? Yeah, and I, I generally either roll my eyes or walk out, which probably isn't productive because I should probably do something about it. But um, I do. I am do, I'm doing something about it, so I feel good that you I can roll my eyes and walk away. It, um, yeah, yeah, it is quite hard, but I, I guess it's like getting your head down and focusing on that you've got to do the small things to make the big things happen. So it's like it won't just happen overnight. That the dialogue will change. But again, I've, I've only ever seen this dialogue, so I don't. I, I assume that this is what it is. So it's just hoping to change that piece by piece to make the big movement. What reaction have you had to What's the Crap podcast? Has it been predominantly positive? Have you had much negative feedback? <laughs> the most negative feedback was on our um, intro music. <laughs> People do not like it. Sorry, Rob. <laughs> um, no, no, we haven't actually had that much um, communication. Our numbers are good, and we're having like, listeners from over 40 countries around the world, so people are listening. It's just we, ha we haven't had that much dialogue. We've been like, promoting a, um, a t Twitter dialogue. We have a hashtag for people to get involved, but it's been quite minimal, so we haven't had any backlash, which is, I guess, good. So the people that are listening are either just listening and going, hmm, or just agreeing and getting on with their lives. I think sometimes that's just... Because we don't get much negative f 
feedback in what we do. And I think sometimes if you just have a reasoned discussion, people get it. You don't need to go for the polarisation. Well, that was one of the most uh, entertaining aspects of my being. So when I was sacked, it was sort of the beginning of the uh, internet and it was the beginning of um, people posting comments on newspaper articles. And it was quite amusing. You know, you'd, have, you'd see this article in the Daily Mail saying, why you should have been sacked. And you'd see 400 people writing, saying, this is a crap article, and you got it all wrong. And it was actually, that, that gave me a lot of courage, a lot of heart, because I read, so even the people that, I don't know, the people that write, read, or you know, at least reply to the Daily Mail, at least some of them were able to think, which is good. Do you ever do that, Chris? I, I must admit, I do read the comments. And sometimes I think, why did I start this? And other times you get some brilliant ones. Well, as it happens, um, in... Uh, I think uh, November last year, the Daily Mail wrote a hit piece on me, which was jolly. Um, they, yeah, they discovered my comedy club, my podcast, and they were furious that it exists. Easily triggered sensitive snowflakes at the Daily Mail were furious that someone was doing just sort of left-wing comedy. They were furious that at my comedy club, you're not allowed to heckle and that like um, jokes about sexual violence are banned and that we are actively anti-homophobic and anti-transphobic and just night we're just trying to be nice and the daily i can't tell you how much the daily mail hated that we were trying to do a positive thing so they wrote this uh hate piece on me and i if you would like to know the full story please come and see my edinburgh show this year uh, which is um called make love and smash fascism i'd love you to be there um and it will go up on youtube as well but uh, it's uh, oh and i tell the story on my podcast that's good plugging isn't it well done chris um i it was i read the comments to that, mainly because I was able to mine it for material. And I'm sorry to say, David, I did not have the experience that you had. It was primarily people um, agreeing with the Daily Mail. There was one man who replied saying that he was going to bring his best friends, Bernard Manning and Jim Davidson, and put them in the front row seats, which I thought was unlikely. Um, if, especially because Manning was dead. Yeah, it'd be a lot of work to go to Manchester, dig up the dead corpse of Bernard Manning, chuck him in a van and drive him to London to watch comedy. He could have just podcasted. Seems like a lot of effort. Um, and there was, of all of the comments, literally one comment where someone said something along the lines of, don't really understand why this is a story. If you don't like it, just don't listen to it or go to it. And that comment got 257 thumbs down. <laughs> So, uh, good times. <laughs> I'd like to congratulate you because that is the first time we've ever had the corpse Bernard Manning mentioned on this podcast. So that's a, a red letter day. Now, go on, there must be some questions. Who's got one? There we go. Thank you. All right, this is where I have to ramble as I walk. And it's always the, the most delicate I feel during this is that we Where were you anyway? Oh, there you are. That um, just in case we never have one, I always have to be queued up with something. Say hello to Nicky. Yo. That's Nicky, the producer, with his many, many, many words. Oh, sorry, can I introduce you as well? Uh, hi, uh, my name's Tom. Um, question for the whole panel, really. You've, uh, there's been, for various reasons, sort of talk about the mainstream media and... A lot of it's, uh, the comments about it seems to stem from the fact that news is kind of secondary to its, its, its existence. Its existence is to make money, to get people to buy, buy papers. Um, but even, unfortunately, yeah, Chris, you're, you're uh, telling, it like, telling it like it is, but your main purpose is to sell tickets and make people laugh. Is, what would the panel like to see as, a, as an alternative sort of framework for delivering news that is more truthful and less beholden to other pressures such as uh, the pressure to make money or the pressure to uh, oh, make very, buy very easy a fully funded BBC absolutely a fully funded BBC and it wasn't other, and scared of political pressure would be you know I mean, it is it is one of the greatest institutions in the history of humanity the BBC mm. and it shouldn't be scared of current political machinations and uh, and you know, it is scared. You can see the BBC has become considerably less uh, uh, challenging in what it will do. I mean, I have lobbied several times to have proper debate about how the drug laws are impeding scientific research. They're too scared to do it. I think 10 years ago they would have done it. So I think, we, you know, the, if, we really, if we could take political control of the BBC, we would have a, have a very, very powerful media presence in this country. 
Let's occupy. <laughs> um, it, it's a good point that I, I need to make money from my comedy. I should think about that at some point, probably. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, I completely agree, of course, and I think it's an incredibly complicated uh, question. The only thing I suppose I'd add to it is that we do have a journalist class and a commentator class who don't really have any particular expertise in things they are they are journalists first um whereas i mean i I will confess i don't know what the journalists of old i don't know whether they used to have a grounding in a specialty and then went into journalism i don't know about that all i know is that now we have people who train as journalists and then become journalists but um somehow become science writers or comedy reviewers to give two examples and um of course these people don't have specialist knowledge of course these people are taking um press releases and printing them almost wholesale as it nick davis coins the word journalism because they have these um economic pressures um, uh, on them to just write m- many articles in a day uh, you know as, as you say newspapers are run as a business and so uh I, one thing that i understand is that in the past there were more journalists and they only had to write maybe one story a day. They had time to research. They had time to just make phone calls to people to fact check. Now journalists have to write something like eight stories a day, churning out the content that is that, that they have to do, otherwise they get fired. And, and it's no wonder that these things happen. I think that I talk a lot about the mainstream, mainstream media. And, you know, but I don't... I think it's a conspiracy. I just think it's, yeah, commercial presses. And, and if... There was a way to alleviate those commercial pressures, as you say, with the BBC, or to just have journalists that had um, one specialty uh, and and then became journalists. I think that in itself would do a tremendous service to the world. I suppose there is a drawback, isn't there, L? That people like we've just discussed our podcast, the fact that you know we're presenting something as experts, but there is that drawback, like Chris mentions, that it is so accessible now that anybody can do this. You know, I've got bylines and journalism credits and I've got no background in this I've got no right to do that and yet I still do and yet that is what the, the it's become now isn't it we've we've now got to a position where anybody can be the expert and put it out in the media but I guess there's an argument that that's a good thing because if you haven't if you haven't got such a specialist in it being a let's say a journalism a journalist with a background in that specific subject then isn't it good that you can actually relate to people that are reading it because you aren't so submerged in that subject that you can go, right, what would I want to read? And what, you know, is just someone without the head so buried in that, that topic that they can sit out and go, okay, so what would everyone else read? And what would they understand? I don't, I don't know whether there's an argument of not, an argument for journalism not being so... Well, you need different it. sorts, don't you? I mean, I, I mean a very interesting man is, uh, is Michael Pollan, who writes for the... Uh, for the New Yorker, so he's a he, he, he writes very interesting articles on diet, and uh, he's written a very interesting book on diet. And now he's turned his attention to our research in terms of using psychedelics to treat uh, mental illness. And and he, you know he he's a, he's written for that magazine, which is obviously a sort of fairly high end magazine. You know, a wonderful article ex- explaining to the, to that audience the science of what we do, and and, and that's really helpful. Because it's certainly something I couldn't do. I mean, I can write to the scientists and I can talk to people, but I couldn't really have the time to write articles for the general public like that. So we do need scientists to communicate. We need journalists to communicate science to people that are interested. But we also need need scientists to communicate the the, the evidence on which those journalists can then develop their articles. I mean, the original question was to do with... Um, uh, the, the question of this uh, event was to do with why do we have a fear of experts? And um, I, I, I think that it's not necessarily just that people don't trust or uh, they don't trust experts. I think it's also that people trust experts if they also have empathy. If you have an expert, uh, for example, you know, someone can know as, as much as you like, but if that person appears to be you know, one of the elite in their ivory tower, the common person uh, uh, will not uh, trust them. They won't think they have their best interests at heart. I think a lot of people would... Um, favour someone who was empathetic but didn't have much knowledge over someone who had a lot of knowledge but wasn't empathetic. I think, you know, you see Trump, Boris and Farage as the examples of that. These people do not have anyone else's interests at heart but their own. Um, They uh, are either idiots or smart but pretend to be idiots or are smart but, you know, doing a, a, a very malicious thing. But people believe that these people have their best interests at heart and so they believe them uh, I, I think that the the, uh, the 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 experts that truly break through 
for example, are the people who know a lot and are also able to relate it to people's lives. I saw another hand up. We've got one here. Yes, thank you very much. All the way over from, from France tonight. Yeah, as you may hear it, uh, my colleague and I, uh, we're from France, so we crossed the channel and left the European Union, but we'll go back. Um, <laughs> sorry, too soon. Is that, uh, um, and um, so we work at a drug policy reform uh, organization. And when we talk to elected officials, one of the things that I try to present is that we are starting to have a very short window um, that is reducing really, really fast. Uh, that will allow us to set up a regulation market for cannabis um, without having in front of us uh, very powerful entities, economic powers that can influence uh, the legislative process. And so um, I'm trying to convey that, that this time is, very, is going to be very short. Um, and I uh, usually say that it will um, be very much influenced by what's going on in Canada and, and um, the cooperation that are being um, created over there um, with a very distinct uh, and precise um, uh, goal to be a world leaders in their in their field, and um, the second mark will be probably at the end of the Trump era in, at the federal level in the in the U.S. Um, and I wanted to uh, have kind of a, your thoughts about that argument. Uh, if you think that it's, it's an effective one, and if you think that it would work uh, in the U.K., um, especially in regard to what Professor Nutt has been saying at the fir at the beginning, in regard to um, passive corruption and not so passive one. So thank you and thank you for everything. Yeah, I mean, there's, I don't, there's no, it's not difficult to organize cannabis in a way which is beneficial. Uh, a little country just across the channel, not quite you, but a bit further north called the Netherlands has done it successfully for 35 years. They have medical cannabis, they have decriminalized cannabis possession, so people don't have criminal records for possessing small amounts. They've achieved you know, uh, a remarkably sane approach to cannabis uh, in the face of fantastic opposition from the United Nations, from the USA, etc. And the reason they did it was because they, they realized that cannabis wasn't, a very, wasn't harmful. But they realized that other, other drugs, particularly heroin and, and cocaine, were more harmful, and they wanted to separate the market. So the, so the Dutch cannabis cafe market uh, approach is, was designed to, to separate people from dealers. If, you go, if you're going to go outside here now and, you know, and start to score some cannabis, you will almost inevitably be offered something else as well. A you know, bit of crack, a bit of heroin. Um, because there's more money in that, there's more profit. People, dealers want to get you interested in those harder drugs. The, D the Dutch wanted to separate the markets. It's brilliant separation. They have, you know, they they have virtually no heroin use in young people because they don't. Young people don't get exposed to dealers. And but beyond that, you know, the Dutch, the Dutch economy hasn't fallen apart. The Dutch soccer team's got to two World Cup finals. The Dutch science is as good as ours. The world hasn't ended in the Netherlands because people can access, in fact, access to legal cannabis, if anything, reduces the amount people use because there's less pushing behind the scenes in the black market. So we have a model and it's, it will be extremely simple to implement and we should do something like that. And so should you, good luck. And I think, Chris, you, you expressed an interest in MDMA, didn't you? Do you <laughs> As it were. Do you think we'll ever get to a position where we can have a legal system across Europe on that? Um, well, actually, uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll skip this question just because the other people on the panel have far more interesting things to say than me. I think it'd be much more better to hear from uh, Ellen David on that one. Go on, then. I think we hand over to Elle. Do you think we can ever get to a position where we've got enough evidence where we can have some kind of regulatory... I mean, we've got drug testing with the loop and what they're doing. Do you think we can extend that to the next obvious step, which is regulation, legalisation? Of MDMA? I think... It Ooh, interesting. Yes. Okay. Let's, have to be, let's move on. <laughs> it would have of to be treated should. Look, separately, I mean, though. Well, in a different know, way. There's no. It's not an issue. We should have a regulated market for MDMA. It's safer than horse riding. You don't need a license to ride a horse. Why the hell should you not be able? To, I mean, you know, it, it, 
it would be perfectly possible. In fact, it, you could maybe even do better than you could probably find something that was even safer than MDMA if you wanted. But that would need a bit of investment and a bit of research. But of course, MDMA is less harmful than alcohol to the user. So it's unethical not to have, have people to have access to safe MDMA because otherwise you're encouraging them to drink alcohol, which is going to do more harm to them and to society. So it's, it's, you know, it's a no-brainer in terms of the ethics and in terms of the economics and in terms of the health benefits. So of course we should. And it's perfectly tractable in terms of, if you don't want people to take a lot of MDMA, well, don't sell them a lot. Give them a card. You know, they can get, you know, 100 milligrams every second week or something. You know, it's, the, the technology would make it pretty simple to have a regulated MDMA market. I'm going to set you up now, Neil, because I know you've got a comment on this that we use ah. in our presentations. Yeah, uh, when you uh, published your um, comparative, comparative study about the relative harms of MDMA and horse riding, I was, I'm a parent, and I've got uh, our two young teenagers at the time, and you absolutely terrified me that they would want to get into horse riding. It's absolutely terrifying statistics. I think it's one in every 350 horse riding events ends in injury. It's terrifying. Well, it terrified me because my two daughters were riding at the time uh, and they don't anymore. I was saying earlier on there this evening, I just... I, uh, clinicaltrials.gov this morning, a friend or a colleague of mine who actually works in Paris uh, sent me this link. And he said, David, look at this. On clinicaltrials.gov, there's a trial of horse riding in autism. Surely that's not ethical. <laughs> it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. He's got another question. I saw it. Oh, we've got loads now. Well done. See? Back's broken and we're all in for it. Right. I think I saw Blaine. Where are we? There you go. Thanks. Um, an anecdote and a quotation. The anecdote is for you, David. In October 2009, I was working on a public health project in the Russian city of Samara. And I was staying in the Holiday Inn Hotel. And every morning they put a three or four sheet news um, paper on the tables for their French, their German, their English and their Russian guests. And your sacking was in the English version on the day that it happened. Um, the quotation I have, please make what use of it you will, is from a Norwegian criminologist called Niels Christie who said in one of his books, the most dangerous use of drugs is the political. Yeah, he's, a great, he's a great thinker and a great writer about drugs, absolutely. And he, he is beginning to influence Norwegian thinking about this because, you know, he's an absolute visionary, yeah. It's very much support what he says. Quite. And it is true, isn't it? The political wrangling of the issue is, is one that just completely doesn't stop, does it? We saw it last week and this week. It's still going on exactly in the same tones as what it was under your dismissal. What's going on as it was in the 1930s. I mean, the reason we have, you know, the whole, the whole war on drugs was started because a 
guy called Harry Anstinger, who was fighting the war against the, uh, the bootleggers in the Prohibition, realised that when alcohol was made legal, he'd lose his authority. He'd lose his 35,000 men. He was working, working under him. He would, lose, would cease to be the second most powerful man in America. So he created the fiction of drug harms so he could keep himself and his people employed. The whole thing has been a, has been a, a, a lie from the very beginning, really. Do you think there is political expediency within certain areas, this one being an obvious one? Well, again, I'm so sorry to keep dodging questions, but I think the, the other panel will have far more interesting things to say to, than me, so I'll, I'll pass over to them again. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the Psychoactive Substances Act. Why do we have that act? We have that act because three years ago, this Duncan Smith policy group, which is, which is a peculiarly ultra-right-wing Christian organisation funded in part by US military um, producers, det- was, de- was determined to get rid of legal highs. So it started m- creating misinformation about the harms of legal highs. And uh, even though the Home Office itself said that that information was wrong, every political party, even the Lib Dems, decided that legal highs were a harm and they all wanted uh, some kind of ban on legal highs. So. Once one party falls in, other, one decides it's going to go hard on drugs, the others are scared. In fact, the, the, I suppose the one piece of good news is that the Lib Dems have now changed their position and they have agreed that they want an open market on cannabis. But, but we, so we've seen it continuously. The, you know, the psychotic substances ban was, was, was based on a, on a set of dishonest data created by, as I say, this ultra-Puritan think tank that, uh, that uh, Duncan Smith runs. I guess the only saving grace with the Psychoactive Substances Act is that possession isn't a crime. So there's like a slight difference with everything Possession's else. not a crime, but giving it to someone else is, even if you're not selling it. And people don't know that. So you don't have to sell it. If you so just supply. give it to your friend, that's a crime. And that's, that is really unacceptable, I think. Well, then we've got, yeah, we got some more questions. Good. Well done. This is exactly what I'd like to see. We've got Laurie. Thank you. Um, I just want to ask the panel whether they think that politicians are right that being seen to publicly support drug reform or reform of drug policy would be a vote loser. Because the Mori poll that you talked about, David, would suggest they're not even right about that, certainly where cannabis was concerned. So actually, are they not right anymore? I mean, there's suggestions and secret ballots, I think, of MPs that actually, privately, a lot of MPs would support drug reform, but they don't feel they can support it publicly because it would lose votes. Well, that's what Cameron Cameron said over a dinner party once, yes. Of course he realises the drug laws are rubbish, but he he can't can't dare come out and say that because he'd be vilified by aspects of the press. I think probably estimates are about two-thirds of MPs realise the drug laws are are actually probably doing more harm than good, but but no one has the courage to, 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 to point out the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. Well, it's different. Yeah, we have to be careful about what we mean by the public, as, and that's the interesting thing about the um, the comment that the drugs minister made, because the public isn't, well, hasn't been up till now. Maybe changed, but but the last election may have shown us that the public, even the drug using public, votes. But up to that point, they didn't. But maybe it's changed, and maybe now young people are voting. That then the, the, the fear of politicians that they will, you know, it'll be neg- a negative um, perception. Maybe that will be undermined. But it's difficult to know where Corbyn st- sits on this. Corbyn is, is is still being zen-like on drugs, like he's zen-like on most other policies. Corbyn has, has spoken out on decriminalisation. He gets that. He spoke at an IDPC event a few years ago and understands decriminalisation, but he has been wishy-washy on anything else. And it, a lot of times we find it's, it's the terminology of the question. If you phrase it so that you put the person at the forefront of the issue and not the drugs, people tend to understand compassionate views towards that. And I think we've got a question down here, if you can introduce yourself. Hi, um, I'm Amber, and my question kind of follows on from that. Um, I work in research, and my job is interviewing doctors, um, and we often ask them what drugs they're using, and we'll often show them um, some information that's non-biased and non-promotional about the drug and ask them whether they would use it. Um, And I think, could we not do more public research, like another poll, but show the public the evidence? Um, So something broader so 
the poll that we did with cannabis, um, I think we know that views towards cannabis are a bit more relaxed, but I think it would be different to see how those views would differ for other drugs such as cannabis, uh, cocaine, ecstasy and psychedelics. But equally, I think it would be interesting to add an element where we ask for people's opinions, but then show them different types of evidence. Um, for example, if we show, for example, with psychedelics, mushrooms, that this is actually one of the safest substances you can take, would people's opinions change? Because I think off the back of that, knowing what evidence resonates with the public could then help us to better communicate with the public and you know, have a stronger argument. And I just wondered what your thoughts were yeah. on that. Just, just uh, yeah, education and I guess getting the information out is exactly what you need. Because I guess uh, using MDMA as an example at the moment, from what I can remember, the last things that I've been seeing is that the, the pill's been so strong. And then the deaths related to that, then the fabric closing, reopening, all the focus is on that and MDMA. Um, so I guess it's changing the narrative to then accompany the, the, the question that goes with it instead of just going for the question and then expecting you going from there. So after the Runsman report, the government um, was asked, well, the government was kind of forced to make a response. And what it did was it commissioned the Academy of Medical Sciences to write the, a critique of the Runsman report. And, uh, and the Academy of Medical Sciences is a lot of old people, even older than me, you know, old doctors, and uh, they didn't quite know what to do. So they decided to set up some focus groups. And, uh, and the, the focus groups were remarkable because they, they drowned them rather well, and they, they asked that question. They asked the question to people at the beginning of the focus group, what do you think about the Red of Hans? And people were terrified. And then they, they talked to them through the report, and afterwards they asked them what they thought, and people said, well, actually, we were wrong. And they showed you could change public opinion through a process. So it's a kind of, I suppose, an hour, two-hour um, dialogue with the public. And, uh, and so then they wrote their report, and... Uh, and the government then looked at it and said, you can't write this, it's far too positive about drugs. So then they had to wipe out large chunks of it. And of course the government could say that, because the government funds them. So in the end, you know, even, that's one of the big problems. You may not realise this, but most, almost every academic in this country relies on government funding to survive. Particularly if they're doing research, because all the, almost all the research income comes from the government. So there's, they, the government can put enormous pressure. So, so the, these academies and the Royal Society, they're terrified of standing up to the government, because the government can just put a line through their budget next year. So it's, it's, it's quite, you know, it's, the, the, the evidence is there that the public can be educated and can, have it, can change their minds if you invested it. I, I think we've got one from Amy. I think we've got a room for about two, three more questions and then I'll best let you get home. And that kind of links to what you're saying about the... So what's the responsibility of the media then? Because they're only catering for the appetites of the general public. And at the moment, sensationalism is quite popular. And you can see that from the popularity of Love Island and the drama and drugs is a very good subject to sensationalise over. And uh, so what role... It's sort of like we're in this vicious cycle. The media are misinforming the general public, but they're only selling the stories that the general public want, in quotation marks, Yet the government are only basing their policy on what they think the general public want. But if the general public are misinformed, so how it's do wonderful. we get out of that it? vicious and cycle? It's been going on for 80 years. That's right. Yes, it's, it's brilliant. It's, and it's a real winner. Yeah, you're quite right. They understand that. Yeah, I, it's, uh, how do we break out of that? Well, we, we get rid of the newspapers, I think. You know, be, you know, or you, have, you have, have some kind of policy that stops newspapers telling lies. <laughs> Not easy to do. But I, well, I, has, I think, you know, it, it, it's, if, if enough of us don't buy the newspapers that do tell the lies, then presumably they wouldn't be selling. I don't know. It kind of goes into what you say, Chris, doesn't it, of direct action. Is, is boycotting and not doing something, is that direct, direct action? Yeah, well, um, it's, it's, it's going to be a long-term thing, isn't it? But um, to, to, to add extra into the, the circle of nonsense is that because newspapers are commercial entities, if public opinion changes, then they will probably change their stance. 
but how do you change the political opinions of people in the first place? And it's an incredibly complicated thing, and all we can do is uh, keep making noise. We, we can... Sounds cheesy, but we can be the voice that the newspapers aren't. We have a profound effect on our friends and family, and if we can convince them, then they will convince people. And rather than... Um, I, I, I agree with what you're saying about revolution. I agree with that, absolutely. <laughs> but, I, but I think that um, the, 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 the most realistic thing that can happen is that we all educate our friends and family and get them excited enough to educate their friends and family and have a domino effect i think that will be the rather than boycotting newspapers um which may or may not have an effect maybe in the short term maybe in the long term who knows um definitely we can make a difference I think the narrative is starting to change, though, because the Mail Online, when addressing the drug strategy, strategy that was just put out, they framed it that not acting and not discussing legalisation is the controversial position. That's completely different to what it was just even last year. So the fact that the Mail Online is saying that not being open to legalisation is controversial, we're possibly getting somewhere. Um, I, I think it's important to remember that the Mail Online um, is different to the Daily Mail and that the Mail Online often has no consistent viewpoint on the world other than what will get clicks. So sometimes you will see things like that and then they will write an article that will say exactly the opposite. So it doesn't necessarily reflect anything other than that they like advertising revenue. That's a shame because that one served as well on Facebook, didn't it, Neil, when we put that one out? Um, all right, there was two questions in the middle here. If you could pass over again, so you're the mic passer. Hi, I'm, I'm just wondering how far we go in the trust of experts. So should the ACMD be setting drug policy in this country? Um, and would you be happy for experts to set policy in other areas, or do you think it should be left to kind of democratic processes? Well, I, I suppose in the end, democracy got to decide what it, what it wants. But um, generally, you know, when I'm seeking guidance on, uh, on my health and my car and my finances, I prefer experts rather than uh, the Daily Mail or, any, or anyone else who isn't an expert. So, uh, yeah, I mean, expertise has surely got to be the best we can do. And we should, uh, we should aspire to it rather than criticise it. And, and, of course, the, the condemnation of experts by Gove and co was, was simply an attempt to undermine um, critical arguments relating to Brexit. So, yeah, I, I, so, and specifically about the... Yeah, the, I mean, the, the law says the ACMD actually should be, at least in terms of the Misuse of Drugs Act, saying what's true. And, in fact, it was, interestingly, until, until, nine, until 2004, only once did the government overrule the ACMD. And that was when it voted, the ACMD voted to legalise cannabis uh, by a very, uh, I think a majority of just one. And so the government said it wasn't, wasn't sufficiently big, um, you know, convincing a decision. And since 2004, they've overruled the ACMD on a regular basis. So I think giving the ACMD more clout and actually you know, giving it responsibility, it would, do, it would certainly do a better job than, than Parliament, yeah. I think we've got two more questions. One here, one down. Hi, um, I'm Rob. And, uh, yeah, it seems to me that um, there's a lot of parallel organisations. So uh, this organisation obviously addressing uh, drug policy reform. But pretty much every facet of our society has its own organisation and uh, activist group and research and experts, whether it's uh, fighting for taxation policy reform or educational policy reform or climate change policy reform. And it seems a very similar, similar pattern of events that um, no matter what the area, there's always this real uphill struggle against the system and that everything is really uh, programmed and, and uh, um, structured so that uh, progress is, is really incredibly difficult, if not impossible. Um, so I'm just guessing, uh, I guess I'm sort of wondering when we take it out to the broadest possible context, what your views are on uh, sort of full systemic change and, and what might need to happen in our system to actually create something that facilitates the implementation and creation of policy that is based on evidence uh, as opposed to what we've got now? Well, surely there's got to be an education. It's got to be, I think we've got to start teaching kids to think and question. I mean, you know, our educational system is, is really pretty pathetic. We, we teach them facts, but we don't teach them how to think. I mean, I've noticed, you know, now, I mean, I teach medical students, and actually, they resent being asked to think. 
don't, I don't want to think. Just tell me, the, tell me the answer. Tell me the facts. I'll learn all the facts. But I said, but getting people to think critically about what facts mean is really challenging. And, and we've, I think we've seriously gone backwards in terms of the sort of intellectual quality that we're getting out of, uh, out of schools and universities. So I, I, would, I would put that at the priority, that thinking should be the key of education. Do you think that's where your realm comes in, Chris? Do you think you can actually stimulate critical thought within parody and satire? Yeah, I can. I'm really good. <laughs> you yeah, specifically. I, I think that you, you, you're right. We, we, all of the campaign groups are up against uh, institutional barriers. We, we have lobby groups that want to get in the way of uh, uh, reforming pretty much every single thing that is dangerous. I think that the, result, the, the answer is to scrap neoliberalism and replace it with democratic socialism. There is a chance I might be biased when I say that. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, 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 the barriers are huge. And, again, all we can do is keep on making noise. Further, to bring it back to what I was saying before, how many people really know who the taxpayers alliance are? How many people know what the Adam Smith Institute is or the Institute of Economic Affairs? And yet these people are always on our TVs, doing so much damage to our discourse, to our democracy. Um, education will surely fix this. Right, I'm going to take two questions together, if that's all right. Hi, I'm Chris. Um, Elle, I was struck by your comments earlier where you talked about not having a PhD. You were kind of looked down upon within your, within your own academic community. I wonder, does that element of almost snobbery kind of prevent, do you think, the academic community having a proper discussion and engagement with the general public, many of whom are simply looked upon as your average Daily Mail or Sun reader who won't understand what you're trying to say in the first place? Can you repeat that? <laughs> so it's, it's whether there's kind of a, a view within the academic community that people won't understand what you're trying to say and therefore that prevents a proper engagement. Um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say snobbery within the circle. It's just, I don't know, I don't know whether it's just a feeling of, um, you know, the classic imposter syndrome that I don't know enough because I've only been there for a short period of time. But then again... I think that's, there's definite benefits to connecting with the general public because I've still got my own language that I can portray to the general public instead of, I don't know, the academic language that's been with me throughout, throughout the time. So I think when coming from... So I came from a chemistry background to more of a psychology background. So I went from hard science to soft sciences and I had to learn a completely different new language and that was, you know, I was just like, I have, I, yeah, I don't know what's going on here. But then, you, you know, you learn and then, you, you know, you get going and then you understand it. And then you can use those words yourself. And I think, yeah, I think there's definitely something in being lower down the totem pole to be able to connect with a wider audience. Because I don't think I'm using a lot of big words, which is great. <laughs> but, you know, it's just, yeah, accessible, I think. Yeah, I actually wrote for The Sun once. It was quite an interesting experience. It, you know, it's a bit, it's actually kind of like Twitter, you know, you, you've got, you know, no sentence can be more than 140 characters, <laughs> then it's another paragraph, another paragraph. But it's, actually, it's not difficult to write at any level. Um, what, you need to, what you need is to be asked to write it, you know, and that was, I say, I've only done it once, they asked me, I did it, even though I, they've been quite despicable to me, I thought it was important to get the message across just to, so that at least some reader once in their lifetime might read something sensible about drugs. I think we've got one more question. Thank you. Hi, I'm Matthew. Um, I just wanted to pick up on the point about Jacob Rees-Mogg and yes. what he famously said, or infamously yeah. now, yeah, yeah. Um, is actually the experts he was referring to at the time were, ec sorry, were economists. Yes. So isn't surely not the problem partly that economists have lost their way in thinking and that they now believe that they're quantitative scientists when actually they really come from a history of qualitative scientists and this has actually driven the problem in the first place? Yeah, yeah I, I'm not. It's not. My, I'm not. I'm not knowledgeable enough to defend the science of economics. They do give Nobel prizes in it, but you're right. It is just a descriptive science. Yes. No. Yeah. Absolutely. No. I'm with you. And have you have you all seen the film An Inside Job? Have you all seen the film An Inside Job? You haven't seen the film. Yet? You've got to see it because this is this is the film. Of the banking crisis, and it's a brilliant film. Uh, I think did it, I think did it win you know a prize for the best documentary an Oscar. It's a film of how it actually happened, how the crash happened, and the greatest part of that film 
is when they go and interview the professor of economics at Columbia. And it's, it's this, those, and how many of you are academics? Just be careful of this. When the press come to you, someone comes to you with a camera and wants to ask you questions, be careful. So they go to this guy and they say, hi, you know, you're one of the government's advisors and uh, uh, yeah, you're obviously very influential in sort of planning US government strategy. He says, yes. And, he's t I think, and we gather you also had an involvement in the, um, the policy making in Iceland. He said, yeah, that's right. But you can see he's getting a bit uncertain now because he thinks that's, he wasn't expecting to be asked about Iceland because you all remember that Iceland collapsed completely. And he said, well, this is interesting. So what did you do? And he said, oh, well, I, you know, I, was, I guided the government. And he said, oh, well, that's interesting because actually we have this report you wrote for the Icelandic government saying everything was hunky-dory, um, which you gave to them a week before the collapse. And you're thinking, bloody hell, I'm in trouble now. And <laughs> they say, how much you get paid for this? He said, I don't remember. Oh, well, I can't tell you. They paid you $150,000 to write this. But did you actually write any of it? And at that point, you know, the whole thing just collapsed because he was exposed as a complete charlatan. So there may be economists who aren't, but unfortunately, a lot of those economists were playing a game which was making them a lot of money, the universities a lot of money. In fact, the other most remarkable thing about that film was they went to Yale and they interviewed the... The head, was it Yale, was it or Harvard? Anyway, one or the other. They interviewed the head of Department of Economics. And, and they said, do you know what, you know, do you believe that economists should be ethical? And he said, what do you mean? Well, he said, well, typically, you know, you, you wouldn't have um, someone working in a drug company making decisions about whether a drug should be licensed. So he said, yeah, I agree with that, absolutely. I agree, we shouldn't, you know, that, that wouldn't be ethical. So how come members of your department are making decisions about interest rates, which are directly benefiting them, because they're making money out of it, and you as a university. And he, he said, well, that's different. Econo you know, we don't need ethics in economics, because we're kind of beyond or above or whatever. And, and that's, that is the problem. And, and, and again, that's part of what happens in politics. It, people, many politicians believe that, that they can surmount all those, under, those pressures, even the, you know, certainly they think they can surmount the covert ones, and they often think they can subvert the overt ones. And, and, and then they're wrong. You can't. Those pressures are there. And, and once you start, even if you just take the beer, you know, you are taking the, you know, you're actually be complicit in that process. Yeah. So see the film, An Inside Job. It's a wonderful film. I think we've got time for just one more. So as an American who's living in a quote-unquote post-truth society, how do we begin as, as ethical academics how do we begin to sort of wield the power of truth in such a way that it can actually make policy more ethical? Like, how can we begin to hold policymakers accountable as the hard evidence from organizations like Drug Science? How do we begin to wield the power of the truth to hold policymakers accountable and make sure that they are making ethical policy? Why? One of the interesting things about America at present is it, this is wonderful pendulum the fact because your government is so utterly bereft of any kind of quality that the newspapers have now taken on the role of being the the arbiters of truth and it's fantastic the the, the fact that the washington post and the new york times have now become the champions essentially of, of the kind of the country as opposed to the government is it is a it gives me a bit of hope that that that, that that newspapers, you know, could potentially be reformed as the BBC is here. The, 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 these are the bastions of truths. So, you know, that, that's the one good thing that's happened in, in terms of, uh, of the US. And, you know, let's commend them. And let's commend the fact that many more people are buying them and reading them because they are, they're definitely much more interesting than Trump's uh, uh, tweets. Yeah. And it is strange, isn't it? Because you, you have got this battle now, haven't you, between the, the presses and the political class. It's, it's fascinating to watch because it's almost soap opera, isn't it? It's, the, it's Sean Spicer and what goes on there. I mean, it's, I'm diverting a bit here because we shouldn't really go into this being a single issue, but it's just so fascinating to watch that. And it's, and it's just quite wild as there's a large population in America that doesn't have the educational background or the individual conviction to even formulate their own opinions and they just sort of go with whatever they see on CNN. And as the New York Times is kind of starting to come on the rise and really advocate for the truth, there is some hope, I think, that at least the readers of the New York Times 
which kind of a self-selecting group, unfortunately, there is a glimmer of hope that that perhaps the media will begin to start holding politicians accountable. But in the context of the UK, how do you guys begin to do that? We have comedians. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> um, just, just a quick thing. I think it's really... Ayo! <laughs> Um, I, I, I think it's, it's really interesting how now in America getting a subscription to the New York Times is activism. <laughs> is that amazing? Because you know, this is a thing you can do to fight back against Trump. And to bring it back to what you were saying earlier, perhaps this is what we have to do is that we, uh, we need to frame uh, being interested in what is actually happening and facts as activism. Uh, as a way of battling back against the world, maybe this will help. Factivism. There you go. That's that's a podcast. We need to yeah, we need to collaborate on that. Factivism. There you go. That's another podcast. All of us. Can I plug my podcast? Please do. Go for it. Listen to What's the Crack. It's on Acast for acast.com forward slash What's Crack. Spell C R A C K. Like the drug. And for the people at home who I can't flyer because of, you know, that's physically impossible, um, please listen to my... Uh, my part is called Chris Coltrane's Lolitics Podcast and it is a podcast of live stand-up comedy. I also do a YouTube show called The News Free Dits and I'd very much like you to give both of them a go. I'm taking a picture of it so I can put it across the scrolling links on the cast. I'm, yeah, I'm going to think I'm multitasking here. Anyway, quick wrap-up then from everybody. El, where do we go from here? Is there going to be drug policy reform of any type in the UK anytime soon? And can we play a part in making it happen? Yeah, I reckon so. I think Canada will have a big influence on the UK. Well, I'm hoping so anyway. I'll bring back some news once I've done my PhD. Nice. <laughs> Professor Nutt, where are we going from here, do you think? Yeah, well, we've, I think we, the, the, we've got to win the battle about medical marijuana. That, that, is, the, that is the critical, critical issue in Britain at present. That, you know, it, the, if we can't win that argument, then we aren't going to get changed because you know, the, 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 the moral position and the health position is so overwhelmingly positive. So, so that's, where, uh, that's where I think you know, we're going to put a lot of our efforts. So, I mean, I don't know if you know, we, we, we wrote a report for the WHO arguing for medical for them to change their scheduling of medical marijuana last year, they they refused to accept the report because it wasn't written by them. Or they don't. They'd actually refused to write a report for the last five years, which is why we wrote it. But it's, we we now the evidence is there. It's uncontroverted. Eighteen countries have got medical marijuana. It's it's actually a cruel policy to deny it to our population at present, and that that is where we really should focus as much effort as we can to get that law changed. And Chris, your job is to send as many comedians you can our way because, as you know, you hold power, believe it or not, in a weird kind of frightening way, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you reckon this is going to pan out? Well, you, you, your question is where do we go from here? Um, we've been going for two hours. Pub? <laughs> <laughs> like I can't thank my guests enough for that one. Uh, I was absolutely delighted with the conversation that took part on that night. Um, I was so it was one of those times where I, I didn't feel like I was actually participating. I was just there as a spectator, listening to the brilliant intellects that were on stage. Um, I can't thank my guests enough. El Wasworth from What's the Crack, Chris Coltrane from Lolitics, and of course Professor David Knight. And please don't go out, go out and buy his book because um, you'll be doing a good deed and educating yourself on drugs while you're at it. As ever, I need to do some quick thank yous. Thank you to Nikki, the producer, and to Tristan, the producer. Thank you so much for everything you do, guys. Um, make sure that you also check out our friends podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. We've got Hardcore Listening with Chris and Stu. We've got Tuesday Night Joy with Jim Smallman. We've got Say Why to Drugs with Susie Gage, brilliant resource for drug education. And, of course, the original Distraction Pieces with Scroobius Pip, our boss. So... I think that might be it. And of course, my name is Dad. Thank you for the artwork, all you do. And John, John, our guy that does the Distraction Pieces Network social media, go and listen to his podcast, Dream Factory, which I'm hoping to be on fairly soon, but don't tell anyone. Right, I think that's it. Make sure you come back for next month's episode. I'm not sure what it is yet. We've got Lowe's queued up, but it's at my whims to know what I'm putting out next. And I think I know which one it's going to be. Um, we've got about seven or eight in the bank and it's getting hard to choose because they're all so damn good. 
So it's going to be a bit of a surprise what's next month. Please do come back and listen to it. And as ever, share it about, like us, tweet us. And also, if you can leave a review on iTunes, that's nice as well. That does help. So on that note, on that begging note, I'll leave you again. So thank you so much for listening. Speak to you again soon. Bye. Behind your barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay Behind your barricades Where true values seldom stray Selling a little? Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.